Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Littmer, and I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. Today we're going to be looking at one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and that is Peter's great confession. It's found in all of the Synoptic Gospels. It's found in Matthew chapter 13, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, and Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 21. For our purposes, we're going to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Okay, let's see if we might illuminate this a little bit more. The city of Caesarea Philippi was located at one of the three sources of the Jordan River. It was approximately 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and two and a half miles east of the city of Dan. It was the capital of the territory of Philip. Philip was the son of Herod the Great, and at the death of his father, he inherited the region. This particular Herod was very much unlike the rest of the Herodian family. History indicates that he was dignified, moderate, and just. Herod Philip died in AD 34. It's interesting that Luke includes the fact that immediately before this conversation took place, Jesus was apart from his disciples praying. And when you think about it, in view of the momentous things that were about to be said at this time, it is wholly consistent for Jesus to have been engrossed in prayer. Rejoining his disciples, Jesus asked the first of two questions. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, what's the popular opinion about me? Jesus wanted to know what the multitudes were saying about him, not the opinion of the leaders, but the multitude. The popular opinion at that time did not regard Jesus as the Messiah. This could possibly be traced to the fact that Jesus had condemned their current view of the Messiah as a political leader 
and had refused to be crowned as an earthly king. But some thought that he could be perhaps John the Baptist. Remember that Herod thought Jesus might be John back from the dead in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 2. Some thought that Jesus was Elijah, since Elijah's return had been prophesied by Malachi. Others thought that he was Jeremiah. Still others were more vague, thinking that Jesus was simply one of the prophets. Then he asked his second question, Whom say ye that I am, or who do you say that I am? This was asked of those who had spent the greatest amount of time with Jesus. They had heard him teach the most, witnessed the most miraculous works at his hands. They had been the recipients of special, private instruction from the Lord. They had had time to form a more correct opinion. Peter responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To me, there are two things that stand out in Peter's answer. Jesus was the Christ, the Anointed One. Jesus was the Son of God, therefore divine. Peter did not fully understand the nature of the work of Christ, nor did he fully understand the sense in which Jesus was the Son of God and thus divine. But his statement is a clear expression of his faith in those two propositions, as imperfect as his understanding might have been. Jesus was the Christ, and he was the Son of God. Yeah, absolutely. Peter doesn't um, doesn't get the whole picture, obviously, but he still has... And we, we see that in the in the following verses that we'll get to of as an example of Peter not getting the whole the whole picture, but it, it's still he he knows that this is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, as John six sixty eight will talk about when Peter there again will say, The Lord whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew, without again understanding the whole picture, knew I need Jesus. I need Jesus. It's not that we need to for us in application, understand everything in in Scripture necessarily. It's that we do we understand that we need Jesus and that we need to to serve Him, and and Peter absolutely saw the necessity in his life for Jesus, as well as um, an understanding to know that this is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God that is still living today. Obviously, uh, Peter. Uh Peter's name means rock, and so when it says you are Peter and on this rock, uh, that has caused some controversy. Uh, Well, what is the rock that he's referring to here? Is Peter the rock, or is the rock his uh, confession of faith in Jesus Christ, Uh, also known as the good confession, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? And, you know, obviously uh, Catholicism uh, uses this passage to justify the teaching that Peter was the first pope uh, and that the church was founded on Peter. Let's just say for argument's sake that Peter was the rock upon which the church was established. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 does teach that the house of God has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Even if that was what was intended by the Lord, that the rock was Peter 
and that he built it on on him. Uh, Peter was no more uh, set apart uh, uh, or um, identified as uh, as a pope here as any one of the other apostles. Paul taught that they all were a part of the foundation. That is, their teachings would help to build the church of the Lord, and whatever they taught, I prefer translations that say, whatever they taught shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever they loosed shall have been loosed. That is, that they did not take any of that uh, initiative uh, to determine what their doctrine would be. You know, interestingly, related to the foundation question, it is obvious that the apostles and prophets were part of the foundation, but the primary part of the foundation, the cornerstone upon which everything else is based, was our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's brought forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. Where Paul said, "For other foundation can anyone, or no other foundation, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." The Lord's answer to Peter, in the Lord's answer to Peter, he called him Simon Bar Jonah. This was an Aramaic phrase showing that Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, which was the popular dialect used by the Jews during the captivity. Bar means son, and Jonah is Jonah or John. When Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, he made a statement about which there has been a considerable amount of discussion. Two interpretations are held. First, flesh and blood represents men whose false opinions have been cited and from whom Peter did not receive his conviction My Father affirms the deity of Christ and his unity with God. God had revealed the great truth to Peter through the deeds and words of Christ, who is God. Peter had not come to it by unaided human reasoning. Or secondly, by my Father has revealed. Jesus means not by oral communication, even from himself, but of that inward reception by silent communication from the Father, which is the sole source of true knowledge of spiritual things. Evidently, interpretation one is to be preferred, because Jesus has labored by word and deed to bring them to this conviction, and he repeatedly declared his revelation sufficient for faith and condemned the Pharisees for not accepting the truth. There is a sense in which all revelation and all comprehension of truth is from God, But to say this was from God apart from the instruction of Jesus is to set aside the importance of the Incarnation as sufficient in itself to bring faith without special immediate aid. In the statement of the Lord, Jesus is the builder of the church. Petra is the rock. Petros is Peter. You know, you can kind of view it in this way. Petra denotes a great mass of rock. Kind of think of the rock of Gibraltar. Distinct from Petros. Petros referring to Peter as a stone or a boulder, a stone that might be thrown or easily moved. So in Matthew 16 and verse 18, metaphorically it is used of Christ and the testimony concerning him. 
here the distinction between Petra concerning the Lord himself and Petros, the apostle, is really pretty clear. As Ross said, the rock to which Jesus referred was Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The church is built upon Jesus as the primary cornerstone, the basis upon which all else is built. It's not built on Peter. There's been considerable discussion concerning Jesus' statement about the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Again, two views seem plausible to me. The gates of Hades shall not be able to prevail against the church in the sense that the grave shall not be able to hold Jesus when he was crucified. Hades shall not prevail against it, meaning its establishment by Jesus on Pentecost. Secondly, gates are a symbol of power or strength. The strength of a city was measured by the strength of its gates. The greatest foe of Christianity is not death, but the devil. Two great kingdoms are at war in this passage. Satan's kingdom shall never prevail over the Lord's. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. Well, what do keys do? Keys represent the power to open and to close. Peter had the keys in the sense that he preached the first gospel sermon, complete with terms of admission into the kingdom, on that day of Pentecost. It can be said that he opened the kingdom to the Jews that day. Peter also preached the first sermon to the Gentiles at Caesarea, to Cornelius and his household, thereby opening the kingdom to the Gentiles as well. The statement Jesus made concerning binding and loosing was also made to the other apostles in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 18. It refers to their teaching, telling people to observe all things whatsoever the Lord commanded them. What they would be binding upon people were those things already bound by the Lord. What they would be loosing would be those things already loosed by the Lord. It's important to note that the words kingdom and church are used interchangeably in this particular passage. If they were not so used, then there would be no satisfactory interpretation of the passage possible that I could figure out. You know, interesting when you compare the imagery of John 10, where Jesus is the door, and Peter given the keys to the kingdom. It's like, well, so Jesus establishes his church, or his kingdom, and he is the door, but yet Jesus has the keys. <laughs> and, you know, I think one of the takeaways we could get would be some people think of the words of Christ the red words, you know, the words in red, those are the ones that matter. And they're, they're sort of a, a inferior teachings of the, the words in black by the, by the men whom he chose, the apostles. And Jesus doesn't think that way because those are not their words. They are the words of God given to men. And so we should not think of the teachings of the apostles as as somehow less authoritative or true because what we're what we're seeing when they write is we're seeing the implementation of the keys to the kingdom they they give us access through their through their teachings okay it is apparent from the gospels that uh, 
the apostles didn't understand certainly the significance of Jesus being the Christ, being the anointed one. I get the impression, and I'd be interested in what you guys think, that the apostles still had an earthly, political kind of view concerning the Messiahship. They didn't understand the spiritual nature of it yet. They were on their way toward understanding, but they didn't understand it completely. If they had proclaimed to the people that Jesus was the Christ, with their own lack of understanding about it, well, such a proclamation would have been immediately misunderstood by the multitude and would have created a great deal of difficulty. So Jesus charged them that they should tell no one that he was the Christ for the time being. Let's go ahead now and look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28, which is the first clear distinction of the prediction of his death, beginning with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It needs to be noted that beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 16, there is a distinct change that takes place in the teaching of the Lord to his apostles. They were only about, at this point in time, nine months from the cross from that time forth indicates that things were changing. The apostles had come to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah, but their understanding of what that meant had to grow, had to mature. They needed to be clearly taught what kind of Messiah Jesus was. Time was beginning to press upon them. The cross loomed in the near future, less than a year away and they needed to be forewarned and prepared lest they be overwhelmed by the coming events. Every day the plots to kill Jesus were getting bolder and stronger. He needed to inform them that to die was the reason he came. Imagine being so sure of something that you would feel comfortable rebuking Jesus. You know, Peter thought, I'm sure, that he was uh, doing some noble thing by standing up, rebuking Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. It really is humbling. It is really a teachable moment 
to just take that in and recognize that Peter was so emboldened in his belief or what he understood that he would think that it it was right to stand up and rebuke him and you know scripture is true and it teaches that when it comes to the things that God has said it says let God be true and every man a liar whenever you find yourself going up against what men believe and what men have always taught and what the word of God says we should bank on what Jesus said you know Peter had kind of unwittingly offered the same temptation to Jesus that Satan had offered in the wilderness dissuade Jesus from the cross offer conquest and victory of the world by earthly means other than death this is why I think Jesus called Peter Satan he was doing what Satan did and playing Satan's role. Get behind me is Jesus' way of telling Peter to get in the role of the follower where he belonged instead of trying to dictate to Jesus and become a stumbling block. It was a divine plan that was to be carried out. It could not be viewed from a worldly standpoint as Peter was doing. To the rest of the disciples and to the multitude, Jesus taught a most valuable lesson. To be a disciple, one must learn to say no to many of the strongest cravings and desires of earthly nature and perform our daily duty at any cost, even that of the most painful death. To be a disciple, one must be willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes. The Lord explained that the person who seeks to save his own life in the selfish and worldly sense shall lose it in the most important sense, the spiritual. But the one who loses his life for Jesus' sake, meaning to deny himself and serve the Lord, shall find his life in the highest and eternal sense. Peter and the rest of the apostles and the multitude as well were thinking about a worldly Messiah with a worldly kingdom, with its prophets, physical benefits and rewards. But Jesus showed that the goods and wealth of the whole world, the whole world, do not compare in worth with the rewards of the true kingdom. Both Mark and Luke mention Jesus' statement, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh into his own glory. Peter had just been ashamed of the way that Jesus had pictured himself as undergoing the humiliation of a shameful death. His warning was clear. If they were ashamed of Jesus in the manner in which he was to die to fulfill the will of the Father, he would be ashamed of them in the day he judges the world. Verse 28 of Matthew 16 demonstrates that these things were going to happen. All that Jesus had said concerning him including the establishment of the church or kingdom in a relatively short period of time. It would occur before all of those standing there at that time had tasted death. Verse 26 is, is very powerful um, to me. Is You can gain the whole world, all, all that you ever desired. You could have the career, you could have the spouse, the amount of children, and... Um, money and the cars and houses, all these things could obtain all of it. But if what good is it if it 
forf if your soul is forfeited, if it leads to eternal punishment, it is we you can we, all of us can can look for the glory that this life provides, um, but it's going to be short term, and it's going to be something that is going to that that, that is not even close in comparison to the glory of our God and serving Him. And there's nothing that we can give in exchange for our soul um, in, in terms of value. Our soul is so valuable and we shouldn't give that up for, for anything. Yeah, you know, the prophet Isaiah has God condemning uh, Judah saying, you have sold yourselves for nothing. And that really is the question that each person will be faced with who is not saved is what what have I gotten for having pursued the things of the world um, I've heard it explained this way it's like ask a young person what do they hope for their lives what are their dreams well I want to get a degree okay what then you know well then I want to get married okay well what then well then I want to get a great job or have a good career okay what then you know it's like you get to the very end and what have you accomplished in all of those things? And if we are not rich with God, we're going to be just like just like Esau was. We're going to have our little bowl of soup, but we're not going to. We're, we're going to have sacrificed the greatest gift that we had uh, in our hands that was available to us. But now we're left with nothing. Okay, that's going to bring this particular episode to a close. What an interesting passage of scripture. Peter's great confession and what it means. We appreciate each and every one of you who has listened. If you are enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends about it. And until we talk the next time, thanks for listening.